So the first reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, um, starting at verse 17. It's on page 10 of your scene. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn, as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy something, as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. And the second reading is from Luke uh, chapter 20. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even 
Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Veronica. Three ways in which you can respond to this uh, message, which might um, awaken a few, some things for you. I don't, I don't know, but um, I don't know. <laughs> but if it does, there's three ways you can, well, you can respond whatever way you want to, but here's three options. Uh, one of them is community groups are a great place to continue the conversation about what takes place. And if you're a part of a community group, that's a gift and uh, a place to, to talk. Uh, the second way is prayer. Uh, and uh, you can pray with people up the back of churches. We do every week, not just this issue. But if this issue awakens anything serious for you, then um, enjoy or, or in, uh, in uh, something else, then um, feel free to pray with somebody up the back after church during the final couple of songs a final song, there'll be an opportunity for you to go and pray, and you can keep praying after the service. And the third way is to interact with me, and uh, you can come and speak to me, of course, but email, my email address is on the back of the zine as well. I'd love to hear from you. You can tell me that you thought it was horrible, or good, or, or you know, way in which I missed, missed the mark, or something like that. That'd be great. My aim here is not to, um, is to get into the thick of singleness, but rather to get into the thick of the text, the, the Bible here. So we're going to get above the issue a little bit here and, uh, and see what, what, what Paul says and see if there's a perspective here for us all. Is that fair? For everybody. Everybody. Let's pray. Father, life is complicated. This is true. And it can be disappointing. We have many expectations and many desires. Some are met, some are unmet. Father, comfort us and challenge us, Father, that we might live obedient lives. Keeping your commands is what counts. Help us to do that in the way of peace that comes in the Spirit and through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. So, remember last week the challenge of G.K. Chesterton, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. Rather, the Christian ideal has been found difficult and left untried. That's true for many areas of the Christian ideal and life, but we could argue that it's no more true than in the biblical challenges around marriage, singleness, and divorce, of being bound, that's the word for marriage, of being not bound, that's single, or of being no longer bound, either through widowhood or divorce, or the loosing of what was once bound. That's all the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. It's worth declaring, of course, that it's a raw topic for all of us to some degree, some of us more than others, touches all our lives. So there are potential open wounds, and when those wounds are opened or even touched in the slightest, it's hard for us to hear anything. Uh, it touches our lives as a community, as I said last week, a, a web of relationships, a family, that's what we are. So today, five myths around singleness. Last week, five myths around marriage, and next week, five myths around friendship, and Craig Tubman's going to bring those to you. Now, why do we choose 
myths as a way, way in. It's in part, it allows us to tackle the issues without trying to be comprehensive. We can walk in the door and have a look and pop outside. In part because it lets us critique a toxic culture in Australia, on, or in the West, on sex and marriage, maybe all over the world. Um, and there is a toxic culture, and I think this month has sort of had toxic sexuality and behaviour on display in some, in some way. But we get to critique that culture through myths, because the myths touch not only Christians, but our society. And we also get to talk about the ways in which followers of Jesus both drink from that culture, not a good idea, and also reject it, a good idea. But most of we're doing myths because we live in the real world. There's no reason to live in fairy tales or, in its opposite number, tales of woe. Here's a fairy tale. Marriage is the ultimate fairy tale. And we get fed the fairy tale from a very young age and then they live happily ever after. Very easy to drink of that one. But we don't live by fairy tales and I'm here to tell you well, you know, I'm one of millions who could tell you that it isn't an ultimate, uh, the scriptures say that, and it's not a fairy tale marriage. But here's a tale of woe. Singleness is the worst ever. Now, I might feel that way, I'm not, not trying to, but that's a sort of tale of woe that exists in our society. And under all of this is a lie, I think, of our world, which is worse than all is not being sexually active. And so the commands of God, which is what counts, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 19, the will of God, which requires discovering, by the way, they end up being sidelined and given up because of desires mixed with fear. And because desires mixed with fear are potent combination. They come together and they, they sort of explode and then the commands of God get sidelined and so the Christian ideal ends up being found difficult and left untried. So in this series we want to dismantle some myths around marriage, singleness and friendship. I read on Facebook this morning doing some research. There's a new Netflix series called Bojack Horseman. I have no idea what it is. I don't know if I just gave airtime to something that's disgusting and foul. Does anybody know? No one knows. Good. In the quote, <laughs> uh, listen to this. When you look at something through rose-coloured glasses, all the red flags look just like flags. Mind blown. <laughs> you could think of that through the lens of marriage. If you look at it through rose-coloured glasses, all the red flags look like flags. So desire and fear mixed together makes us sometimes do unwise things. So maybe the series ought to have come with a trigger warning. As I said last week, we've got everybody in the room today, single and content, single and not content, dating, not dating, never dated. We could be happily married, happily, unhappily married and wanting a better marriage and joining the course or perhaps unhappily married and not wanting to be married anymore. My friend, the Reverend Sam Aubrey, said uh, at a conference I went to 
last month. He said, the one thing worse than being lonely and unmarried is being lonely in a marriage. Being lonely while sharing a bed with someone. Awful place to be. And you might be in the room today. Love to talk to you. There are people here who have been widowed, divorced, and remarried, and some here are, in, are perhaps in a de facto relationship. Everyone's in the room, so everyone is potentially raw, and so on one level, I might upset everyone today. That's possible. I don't intend to. Some disclosure. Uh, most of, many of you will know that I, I and myself are married. Uh, it's not been easy. And my wife would concur, and she would give you the details. Uh, that makes me not single, and I've wondered whether I'm the right person to give this message, but here we are. I've, I can understand singleness, I'll tell you about that in a moment, uh, and I understand the text. <laughs> I, understand, I was married later than many of my contemporaries, and I would watch them get married and think, how does this actually happen? I had a lot of fears too, uh, and so I assumed that what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 28 was true, that those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I was happy to be spared those things. So I did not date at all in my 20s for this reason. Uh, I was already in ministry post-university, so 22, and very keen to serve Christ. And I read verse 32, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. I'm like, ah, that's who I want to be. And I looked at many of the single people I knew and considered them to be heroes. I thought that I would uh, be among them. I assumed that I would not get married and was ready, very ready to be single my whole life. But things turned out differently. Uh, and so I chose many troubles rather than to be free from them. I went to the Single-Minded Conference last week. Here's the website. As you all scurry to get your pens. Just joking. Emma's got a pen. <laughs> Singlemindedconference.com. At that conference, um, I learned this. I learned lots of things. But here you go. Half the people currently married will be single again, and sometimes for decades. So married people can't go. This is not my topic. Yes, it is. Not least of which is you belong in a community of people some of whom aren't married, who would like to be married, or some of who aren't married don't want to be married. That is, it's very rare for a couple to die at the same time. It's important for all of us. It's highly likely that I will be single again. So, five myths. Here we go. These are lifted from the yet-to-be-published book by the Reverend Sam Aubrey, a single Anglican minister from the UK, and the book is called, Google it, Google it, Seven Myths of Singleness, and you can pre-order it from the wandering bookseller. I get no cash back from that. Uh, but these words here are my words, but I'm indebted to my friend Sam. So here's the myth. Myth number one, and you can write these out if you're taking notes on page 12. Singleness requires a special calling. This is a Christian one, although there are secular versions of it. When I was growing up, there was talk of the gift of singleness, capital G, capital S, meant that there were some people who had the gift from God. It was a spiritual gift. They had this superpower required to be single. And it came from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. Each of you has your own gift or charisma from God. One has this gift. 
another has that. And so from there is the gift of singleness, and everyone who doesn't have this gift will be unhappy, and they should go and get married, uh, even if they end up single. So single people that go, I don't have the gift, or I do have the gift, causes all sorts of mental jumps in the mind. I think not only is it not biblical, <laughs> uh, but there's also a problematic assumption behind it, namely that being single is not good, so bad, in fact, that it requires a special calling, a gift that only some have, a little bit like being a martyr. But you read 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul is clear and positive about both states, bound and unbound. So being single is a gift. Being married is a gift. Each of you has your own gift from God. One has the charisma, the, the gift of being bound, and another one has the gift of, the gift of being not bound. That's worth just saying most, it might not feel like a gift, especially, for example, if you are married and you don't want to be anymore and you think, I don't like this gift of marriage. Or if you're single and you don't want to be single, you say, I don't like the gift of being single. And you might think, no amount of talk here from the front, blah, 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 is going to change your mind on that. But maybe there's a perspective here from the Spirit, from God, that's worth pouring over. The gift of single is the gift of being single with less troubles and a potential undivided attention to the Lord and the gift stops if ever you gain the gift of marriage. And I take it that if the gift of marriage ends, then you regain the gift of being single. If we treat the gift not as a status but a special ability to withstand this horrible thing, then what's to stop a married person saying, I don't have the gift of marriage? And so they loose, trivially loose, an otherwise healthy marriage. Now the gift of singleness is not some, not that you are have some particular ability to do well in these sort of single situations. No, the status itself is the gift. Now, what does this do? It stops you from thinking that the grass is greener on the other side. That could be true if you're married or not married. The grass, according to Paul, is potentially green on both sides. That's the gist of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 7. It's what allows um, Paul to say things like, be at peace. And uh, I want you to be free from anxiety about having to change your status. That's what he means in verse 17 when each person should live as a believer, seeking the commands of God in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God called them. And then he has this thing about circumcision and this thing about slavery. And they're both in the end talking about marriage in the end. Because, you know, how does a person who's circumcised get uncircumcised? It's a metaphor. See, they were awkward in the New Testament, weren't they? <laughs> but, you know, circumcision, verse 19, is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. At 4 p.m., we had a little time, and somebody stood up and said, you know, how can we not make these divisions between us? How can we just get on and serve the Lord? And I'm like, let's have a look at verse 19, because that's the point. No matter what our situation, keeping God's commands is what counts. And so, he says, remain as you are. It's a good option. Even with the slavery thing, by the way, if you're a slave, don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. If you're unmarried, Paul says, not always easy to appropriate, but don't let it trouble you. But if you want to get married, he says later, then go ahead and get married. You're not sinning. There's this lovely little twist, you know, um, the slave is the Lord's freed man, and the free man or free person is the Lord's slave. 
And right there, by the way, you're exploding culture for 2,000 years. <laughs> anyway, remain as you are, says the apostle. It's actually a good option. So if you're unmarried, the grass is not greener on the other side. Not necessarily. Although if you want to get married, then go ahead, you've not sinned. Be at peace. And if you're married, the grass is not greener on the other side. If you're unmarried, don't seek to get unmarried, although there are situations to do so outlined in this chapter. God has called you to live in peace. And in other chapters, that requires wisdom, and it's for another talk. Either way, the point is, you get the goodness of God. You know, it's often said that the grass is not greener on the other side, but the gra- rather the grass is greener where you water it. You heard that one before? Grass is greener where you water it. Even that's not necessarily true. I'm going to get the point. In the New Testament, the grass is greener at his appearing. For no matter what status or situation you find yourself in, the grass is greener at a future moment when the Lord comes. And we've got to have our heart, our desires met there. Our fears governed by the future that God has prepared for those who love him at the renewal of all things, at the resurrection, which is what that Luke text was all about. Some Sadducees came to him. They don't believe in the resurrection. They think the whole thing's phony. They want to mock Jesus' belief that the dead rise. And so they ask him a Bart Simpson Sunday school-like question to trick him. And Jesus replied in another same passage. He says, you're wrong about the resurrection. You know not the scriptures nor the power of God. The Bible, God always promised that the dead would rise. And God has the ability to raise it because he's God. But he says this in verse 34, very important. The people of this age marry in a given marriage, given in marriage, so marriage is for this age. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection of the dead will neither marry nor be given a marriage, for they can no longer die, they will be like the angels. No one knows quite what that means, except that there's something about being single that is fulfilled and points to the future that God has prepared for those who love him. I love Mark 10 as well. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, abounding. You'll receive mothers more than you can count. Fathers, you will receive children. (laughs) Uh, and fields, along with the persecutions in this life, we'll come to that in a moment, and of course in the age to come, eternal life, it all points forward. Myth number two, singleness means, I get quicker, singleness means no intimacy or family. It might feel like it's true, but it's a myth. The possibility of a new family in Christ is enormous, And if we do Christian community well, we can live out the calling to love each other deeply from the heart. Not easy. Blood is thick. The blood of Christ is thickest. And that will be shown to be true at the end, at the renewal of all things. But I love how Jesus speaks in such intimate terms of his disciples in John 15, verse 14. This is amazing. He says to his disciples and to us in the power of his spirit, he says to us, you are my friends if you do what I command. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, slaves, 
because a slave doesn't know his master's business. It's above the slave's prey grade. The servant isn't cleared to know such things. But instead, I've called you friends for everything I learned from my father I've made known to you. Isn't that what a friend does? Opens up secrets. In Sam Aubrey's book, uh, he makes the point that the Hebrew word for friend is related to the word for secret because a friend is a confidant. They open up things to you and knows the real you and you know them and they love the real you. See, The son has made you his confidant because everything I learned from my father I've made known to you. I've let you the whole way in. I've opened up everything to you, intimacy with the Father. That's friendship. And Jesus Christ lays down his life for his friend. A friend is someone who knows the real you and loves the real you. I love the fact that the one person who could have picked up a stone when the woman was caught in adultery, the one person who could have picked up a stone chose not to throw it. And so in Christ, you are family. Jesus had his friends And as we come closer to Jesus, we are drawn closer to each other. Jesus, for example, had someone called the disciple Jesus loved, probably John. He was included into the home of Mary and and, uh, her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus. One of my favorite ones is Titus chapter 1 verse 4. Um, Paul says to Titus, he calls him my true son in the common faith. Paul didn't have biological sons. In the original version, it's to Titus, my legitimate begotten. (laughs) Paul never had a child, but he apparently did some begetting through faith. And I'm really excited about being a father in the Lord to people whom I'm not biologically related. We need to be closer to each other. Since we are brothers and sisters, we need to act like it. My children have so many aunts and uncles uh, in the Lord, many of them at, at this church. And I have many fathers and mothers in the Lord. I have one father, God, but I have many fathers in the Lord and I have many mothers in the Lord. And um, I know their touch, their kindness. We can be this to each other. But you've got to jump in. <laughs> Uh, to community, when you jump from a like a into a pool, a clip, you know, and you're halfway out because you've jumped. There's simply no way of going back. You know, you can't jump out and go. Actually, I don't want to do this anymore. If you jump over into a pool, you know, off a cliff, there is no coming back. There's something about community where you say, "I'm going to jump in fully." You know, I can come back if I'm here. You see, but once I've jumped with both feet. I mean, not always easy to do when people have got hurts and experiences in the past, but what could we do to open up this familial world to each other? My last three myths are brief. Third myth, singleness wastes your sexuality. I'll be brief, I've got more things to do, and I'd love your help. Our culture often collapses intimacy and sex and makes it the same thing that you can't be intimate without sex. But surely this idea will corrode our sense of sexuality and our sense of community and kindness. And uh, no matter what you think of the Kavanaugh 
hearing is what's been on topic in the last couple of weeks is toxic college cultures that some people never get over. It shouldn't even start. But the idea that sex and intimacy belong together and can't be separated surely leads to the rise of incels, if you've been reading the papers, not least of which is the Australian this morning. This sort of sense of sexual entitlement. I don't know what it is to be a friend. And so somehow I think I'm entitled to the affections of another. Surely all part of our toxic sexual culture. But we've got an opportunity to be a light. The Bible is very clear that singleness does mean celibacy, that sex itself belongs within the covenant of marriage. I know that's not easy for some to hear, but I met a guy recently, just by way of exposing an alternative. I met a guy recently, he said, are you married? He says, oh, no, I could never commit myself. But he wanted to let me know that he still had sex. And I don't know why he wanted to let me know that. So he said to me, you know, I never uh, went to the bookstore to buy the book. It's a metaphor. You know, I never went to get married. Instead, I always went to the library, he said. Borrow someone and return it quickly. Made me squirm when he said it. Toxic. But not uncommon in Sydney, right? Those of you who are Facebook friends might have noticed that I posted a TED talk from a woman talking about adultery, a secular woman, really interesting uh, thing. It was 20 minutes, so you didn't click on it. But um, she makes some, some extraordinary points in it. She said monogamy used to be one person, one man for one woman, one person for life. Now it means one person at a time. So now we can say, I've been monogamous in all my relationships. So our society um, will say things like not having sex is somehow harmful. You're not a real human being. It di directly attacks your personhood. You, a diminished version of, of life that you should be living. And they make movies about it, like 40, the 40-year-old 40 version. <gasps> and uh, 40 days and 40 nights. The challenge of never having sex for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a month and a half, right? So stupid. The Bible has a glorious, beautiful, different view, and it's this. Jesus was single, and he was the most complete and full person who ever walked the earth, never married, never in a romantic relationship, never had sex, and yet he was fully human, fully a man, fully human. So the myth is that there's no being a woman or being a man outside of a sex life. I just want to point out that being male and being female is a gift from God. And the truth is it's expressed in a million ways that aren't sexual and ought to be celebrated in a million gentle and kind and fun ways without stringing people along, with just being you as a male, you as a female. And together with this collapsing of sex and intimacy, a corresponding downgrade in friendship. We've turned friend from a noun to a verb. We friend somebody on Facebook which only means you've clicked on accept friendship. And when we hear in times past of a very intimate friendship, a record of it in history, you read a slew of revisionist articles saying that these two blokes must have been gay, like Jonathan and King David, as if friendship can't just exist. Closeness. No, in the Bible, you read that people can have a lot of sex and have no intimacy. Problem. 
and you can have a lot of intimacy, none of which is sexual. I remain male, with or without a marriage. Myth number four is that singleness is a hindrance to ministry. You're better off being married. Wrong, says Paul. I've got no doubt this is true. Verse 32, I'd like you to be free from concern, anxiety. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. By the way, I love how virgins, I want to speak to you, men first. You don't, don't hear virgin and hear woman there. That's to impose a whole bunch of medieval stuff on this text. A mar- unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife. You, can, you have this opportunity to be undivided in your devotion to the Lord if you are uh, unbound, being pulled in fewer directions in our daily lives. Now, you're still pulled in a lot of directions, expectations from work, family, friends, even the expectations you place on yourself. But you also have some freedom to choose you know, where you live. Um, if, for example, God does not give you children, which might be a sense, of course, of loss, don't get me wrong, and grief in that place, but it also frees you up from you know, holding their hand for 40 years through... I mean, I've seen people have children that have this fairy tale idea about them, you know, that you have them and you raise them and then at age 17 you send them off to university and thumbs up the rest of the way. It's like, no, actually, it's 50 years of being bound. And that's good, by the way. Don't get me wrong. Marriage is a gift. Children are a gift. Wouldn't it be great if we used our marriages and our singleness to serve Christ and not ourselves? Very easy for single people to become self-centered in the same way that it's dangerous for married people to go hard and stubborn and cynical and angry. But single people can shut the door on their world, but wouldn't it be great if we serve the Lord and we're a blessing to others? Singleness has this possibility of freeing you up for all kinds of service. And the fifth myth is that singleness is easy. It isn't, of course. And some of you know it's true. That it's not easy. You already know this is a myth. But it's worth saying for Paul, neither is marriage. And that's a key. Grass is greener on both sides and the grass has poison on both sides. Paul is positive about both states. But it's not just because he appeared to be content. Oh, Paul seemed content, but I'm not. But rather because Paul pursued contentment. Part of the problem is we define singleness by what we don't have. Sex, children, a particular partner for life. We define singleness by what we lack. We define singleness by being unmarried, whereas we never call married people unsingle. Again, Sam Albury, the biggest common misconception about singleness is that some of us define it purely in negative terms, and so we'll always be negative. So we talk about what it isn't and what it lacks rather than what it is and what it has. Paul says, if you're single, you only lack one thing. He says, the only thing you lack is worldly troubles. Verse 28. It's easy to compare the ups of marriage with the downs of singleness. Conversely, it's easy to compare the downs of marriage with the ups of singleness, which is why some people lose marriages, healthy marriages, inappropriately. But it's better to compare like 
would like. If I marry, you might say that will fix all the difficulties I have in being single. But the truth is you get a new set of problems. If you marry, you're marrying a sinner, another sinner. You want the redemptive grace to be a part of it, but it's not easy. Chesterton said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. In the end, only one single person has kept the Christian ideal. Jesus went to the cross to free you, body, blood, to forgive you and to make you whole again. A spouse won't make you whole. Nor being unbound make you whole. Christ makes us whole and then invites us to join his family so that these words remain true. I want you to be free from anxiety. God has called you to live in peace. And the one thing that counts is keeping his commands. Let's pray. Father, for those of us who are married who are finding it very difficult, I pray that you'll give us redemptive grace and power, common sense, friends, wisdom, strength uh, to obey you, wisdom to know when things are toxic and the ability to speak up when it is and friends here in this church to be heard be listened to, to work out what next. I also pray for those who are unbound or single. There'll be some in the room that are unbound and are content, but there'll be some that aren't. And I just pray that you'll be near us. Do not let us be governed, none of us, be governed neither by desires nor fear. Help us instead to have our desires and our fear governed by the future that you have prepared for us, the situation that you've called us in, Help us to be content if there are opportunities to change that situation, that you'll open those doors for us at the right time. But if not, Father, help us to be at peace. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.